Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio. And for our program today, you have myself, Jacob, and... And me, Chloe. Okay. Good morning. So, good morning. So, before we get started on announcing what we have coming up on our program, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR and Green Left Radio today is being broadcast to you from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. We like to acknowledge that this always was, always will be, Aboriginal land, and that sovereignty is has never been ceded. Mm. All right. So, um, I guess well, um, we have we have a pretty packed program today. We have actually a number of um, interviews, including um, from. Um, do you want to including Joey from um, the Mitre Detention Centre, and then we're also going to be doing an interview with um, Ashkan, um, who is part of the Muslim Women's Council, talking about the kind of food services that they've kind of been provided, and then we're also going to be playing a bit of a pre-recorded interview from um, that I did actually from Green Left with um, Socialist Alliance candidate um, Sue Bolton, um, talking about you know, Labor's kind of small target kind of strategies and how it's um, helping the right. So that's sort of what we've got coming up. And I guess probably one of the kind of main sort of news stories that I get, I think has dominated kind of like the headlines, because I guess we usually like to spend at least the first um, 15 minutes of this program having a bit of a discussion about a headline kind of news story. And now probably the main one, and this is something that pertains to the United States, but it has, I think, very important international significance. But essentially, this is um, this is from reports that uh, a leaked document from um, the U.S. Supreme Court um, basically um, suggests that there is going to be a vote to overturn a landmark ruling. Um, that this landmark um, ruling was known as Roe versus Wade. Um, to basically um, to basically overturn a landmark ruling that that granted Americans the constitutional right to abortion, um, and in fact, um, America's high court highest court is set to actually make this kind of um, decision by the end of June on Mississippi's attempt to ban most terminations after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Now, this document, um, just to kind of give a bit more of an extra way of kind of explanation. Um, you know, it suggests that five out of the nine judges on the bench privately wrote it down um, to strike down this 49-year-old decision. So essentially, yeah, 59 out of nine Supreme Court judges are essentially the ones making this kind of decision. Mm. And now this, yeah, so this is actually, I think this is quite significant. It is actually one of the, it looks like this will be one of the biggest attacks on abortion rights in in probably decades. Um and and I think, you know, given, you know, 
the kind of dominance. This is like everything that the right, the right in in the United States wants. And in fact, if this gets you know if this gets carried through, this will po- probably serve as an example to other countries or other right wing governments that are wanting to implement a similarly repressive kind of legislation. But maybe um Chloe, you wanted mm. to sort of give some of your comments on this. What's sort of happening here? Yeah, it's it's pretty dangerous. I mean, um, you know, our listeners would know about Roe v. Wade. Um, but, you know, it, it didn't really affirm a woman's right to control her own body. It, it just it restricted um, this argument to a woman's right to privacy. So since then, the right to privacy has actually been seen as a constitutional right and cited in the right for same-sex couples to marry, But it, it, it and it also underlines the, the right to contraception. Um, but, you know, what this really means is if this gets – if this ruling passes – um, it would mean that more than half the, the states in the U.S. will vary in terms of who gets to access abortion. So in California, for example, um, it, which is, you know, it's considered politically progressive, um, they, they would offer the easiest access to the procedure in the U.S. But in, in a state like Texas, um, which is a bit more conservative, they would prohibit the terminations um, more than six weeks into pregnancy. Um, and... Yeah, it's just, I mean, this, it, it and, and, the te- and people will remember in that Texas law, it imposes the fetal heartbeat, which is the rule um, adopted by the half a dozen, um, by about a half a dozen states. Um, and that, yeah, it, it really prohibits a, um, an abortion after the six weeks of pregnancy. Most women can't even, they don't even know that they're pregnant at that point. Um, and that law did encourage a lot of vigilante, uh, vigilante justice um, you know, it, if you remember, private citizens could just sue anyone um, suspected of aiding in an abortion procedure. And, yeah, it's it's really dangerous for a lot of women, especially working class women, migrant women who, you know, might have to travel to get abortions. It's it's really dangerous. Um, uh, doctors could be prosecuted for, for trying to help a woman out. Um, it's really the defense of abortion rights is really a struggle against patriarchal capitalist society. And it, it is integral for the, the fight for equality. And, you know, we've, we've seen there have been mass demonstrations in, in ma- major cities defending the right to abortion. Um, but it's also le- it's also fired up the anti-abort, like this leak has also fired up the anti-abortion movement. Um, so, yeah, it's just really important that we fight this authoritarianism and the control of a women's reproductive system. Um, it's powered by misogyny and, and racism and we need to challenge this um, because it's you know it could mean death um, you know w- women seeking sort of they're calling it back alley procedures which can mean death or mutilation um, and the and the jailing of women and doctors around the world hmm. yeah so to kind of um, add a kind of a number of other comments as well is I mean <laughs> It's also probably worth pointing out, I mean, I think you implied this in your comment, but kind of like the Roe versus Wade wound was never really, you know, it no. was never really perfect. Like, in fact, this sort of woman's right to privacy, actually, it actually kind of normalised this idea within the United States. And in fact, this is also, um, it's basically this kind of idea. In fact, it actually relates to almost this whole, whole question around uh, the question of whether queer people should be allowed to um, serve in the military, the kind of don't ask, don't tell kind of policy. Mm. Um, And in fact, basically, it's almost this sort of argument that, oh, 
because in fact, what you see is even the Democrats actually accept this. They kind of like accept this almost sort of moral argument that abortion is somehow this immoral act Mm. when actually we should be changing the language and it's sort of like, well, actually, no, abortion is a right. It's that uh, women have a, a right to do what they want with their body and I think that's always been... That's always been the kind of clear position of the abortion rights movement and of the feminist movement. Um, and so, yeah, the Roe versus Wade ruling has, yeah, always, it's, yeah, because I think essentially the, so much um, politics is so right wing and the right wing in, in, the, um, the right wing continued to dominate politics in the United States. But I don't want to, the argument sort of often, the, the argument that sort of Democrats and Republicans often try to make is that, oh, well, you know, the public, <laughs> they always like yeah. to defer to sort of the public on some of these questions, like i.e. the conservative public doesn't in the conservative Christian belt and so on don't support abortion. Now, yes, that is true. There mm. are very large sections of the community, of the conservative community within the United States that don't support abortion. But actually, what's been interesting is some of the reports that have um, that I've read have found that actually polls actually suggest yeah. within the United States and the majority of people with, um, do actually support the right to abortion. Mm. And it actually just what this um, decision actually shows, it actually reflects the nature of capitalist democracy, especially in the United States. So you have, you have you're, we're living under a system where nine kind of supreme judges uh, mm. can have so much say over what the majority over such a large section of the population, i.e. woman, um, and that the fact that they, these nine Supreme Court judges, can have all this sway. And, of course, you obviously have to take into account there's obviously the factors of this is the legacy of Trump's presidency, the fact that when mm. Trump was elected as president, he essentially stacked the courts. But I also don't, I don't think we need to, we should buy into this illusion that, you know, all of the Democrats were just had majority in this, that, you know, this would necessarily be, you know, necessarily be a big sort of shift in anything because the main issue is that the Democrats are basically, you know, they're actually, despite the fact that there's this mass movement wanting to develop in in response to this, like people are trying to organise mass protests in response to this kind of attack, the Democrats are just simply trying to give the same message that they always give. Well, oh, you can just vote for us in the midterms, uh, just vote or just... and. You know, then we can change things or they'll say things like, oh, well, you know, we can't change anything because the Supreme Court has sort of stacked. And so essentially, but the main the main elephant in the room is that this is reflective of how undemocratic the actual political system is. And, you know, the, the, for any sort of mass movement that actually has to challenge that undemocratic, the undemocratic nature of the American kind of state. And, yeah, and I think the fact that the majority of people, you know, polls actually find the majority of people do support uh, the right, uh, right to abortion is, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's a good counter against this sort of argument that, you know, oh, this is all just because the public, the conservative public support this. And now, yeah, clearly there is a conservative public within the United States. There's no denying that. Mm-hmm. But it's actually really, it's more that the reality is it's a minority, i.e. politicians and their, and their capitalist sort of backers that are just made, they're the ones who have the real say of these decisions. Um, and it's not actually, the majority of people aren't in the United States, aren't actually responsible for the decisions that are being made here. It's made by a minority. Yeah, you're right. The, this, these conservative judges that, I mean, it is scary to think they hold a six to three supermajority in the U.S. Supreme Court. They by no means reflect uh, the majority of people in the U.S. 
and their feelings on abortion. Um, most Americans believe that the procedure should be legal. Um, but we'll, you know, we'll keep watching. We'll, we'll have to keep a close eye on this case. A decision is not expected to be announced before uh, the court's current session. Um, that would end in June. Um, and yeah, I, I guess you know, yeah, these these three justices will just wait and see what what they say. They don't re- represent or reflect the people's wishes. Um, but uh, you know, we've, we've written a Green Left article about this, and it ends by you know talking about you know the the effective way to fight back is to continue mass actions and you know make them more powerful. Um, and that's how a very reluctant Supreme Court back in 1973 was forced to adopt Roe um, versus Wade. Um, it was by a mass women's liberation movement that was part of a larger mass radical radicalization in the streets. Um, so you know this is this is really um, this is really scary. It, it, it like it's um, you know it, it, we are sort of um, looking at women's rights being um, scaled back um, for like what last 50 years or something um, as part of the women's rights uh, movement in the U.S. and around the world. So. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess the last kind of thing, and I think you're, um, it, you raised this very kind of important point. Yeah. At the end of the day, I want to kind of reinforce the point that disproportionately working class people are going to feel the brunt of this. Um, because one of the kind of strange things about living in the United States is you have this dynamic where, you know, there are, you know, there are a lot of well, there will be well off, you know, women of more sort of middle class sort of backgrounds who will probably be able to, even if they live in states that are kind of, repressive on this issue they will be they'll have the potential option of being able to fly over to you know to states that have legal rights to abortion and fly um and you know a lot of working class people um especially migrants and people of color they won't necessarily if they're of low income backgrounds they won't necessarily have this privilege and access and of course that is why this the whole issue of abortion rights is ultimately a class issue and it's in the working class's interests to actually fight for the right to it. Yeah. And, and, and also just to give you a, if people didn't know what's going on in like a state like Texas, um, they've already, they already have this, a number of restrictions that complicate access to abortion. They have, um, just to, just to let you know what it's like for women, they have a 24 hour mandated waiting periods. They've got mandated anti-abortion, um, counseling, uh, and, you know, trying to convince people to not, not go through with it. And the ultrasounds, um, you know, where women are forced to look at pictures of their fetus, it's, it's really traumatizing. Um, so, you know, we, we, yeah, we'll keep, we'll keep watching out for what happens. All right. Well, we'll play a quick announcement. You're listening to Green Left Radio on Free CR 855 AM. I really am not understanding why people aren't seeing the fact that prisons are an integral part of a public health response to a pandemic. Like you, I'm really concerned about whether the data is being released very honestly about illnesses within prison. I have suspicions it's not, but really we need very strong leadership in this country that actually cares about people inside, our most vulnerable populations inside. That's what we need and that's not what we're getting right now. We need to keep radical voices on air Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419-8377.
All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855am. Now, for the first part of the program, um, we will go to play this interview that I had actually recorded for um, Green Left. Um, this is an interview with Socialist Alliance candidate for Wills and Moreland councillor Sue Bolton. Um, and this interview kind of focused on the question of basically Australia's Labor, the Australian Labor Party's small target election strategy, where um, Sue essentially explained that, you know, this get this strategy is helping is risking the right make more gains, especially in the context of this federal election. So yeah, um, we'll play we'll we play the interview um, shortly. Hope you enjoy. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR eight five five AM. What do you see as the biggest issues in this election? Well, from my point of view, I see four issues as being the biggest issues in this election. Cost of living, climate, war and refugees. And on cost of living, what we've seen over the last 12 months is basic consumer items like food have increased by over 5% in the last 12 months. That is the biggest increase in, in prices in the last 20 years since the goods and services tax was passed in 1998. Um, so this ha- is having a disastrous effect on people. It means that people can't afford housing, people can't afford food, they can't afford to pay their electricity and water bills. And it also means that it's made worse by the fact that the government has artificially kept incomes down. They've introduced so many anti-union laws to make it very hard for workers to win wage increases. And a lot of workers um, are now in non-union places or places without an enterprise bargaining agreement, without a framework to be able to fight for higher wages. And people who are on Centrelink benefits haven't had a proper increase to those benefits in 25 years. Um, This is just absolutely disgraceful. It means that there's virtually no place where people who are on Centrelink benefits can afford to live in Australia. Um, I think one of the Anglicare surveys several years ago showed something like only five places across Australia which takes in, you know, very isolated regional areas as well as capital cities were available to be able to, for rent for people who are on Centrelink benefits were affordable for those people. And so this is an absolute disgrace. And so the cost of living does have to be addressed. Then there's the issue of climate change, one of the great unmentioned things during the election campaign. And the climate issue is disastrous. So the coalition's proposal for net zero emissions by 2050 is really just kicking the can down the road Let's just dawdle along and, you know, who cares what the future is? That's really what their viewpoint is. So I think I don't have any confidence they even intend to reach this target of 2050. And of course, that was exposed by one of the National Party MPs saying that this was not a real promise by the coalition government. Um, And I suspect that is the case. They did the bare minimum that they could... um, in order to announce to the world at uh, the big climate conference last year, um, they did the bare minimum so they had something that they could announce 
amongst all of the other governments last year. And of course, the coalition wants to keep on exporting coal for as long as they possibly can. They want to expand gas production. But then on the other side, the ALP wants wants to expand gas production as well. Um, The last time I looked, gas was a fossil fuel and it's one of the fuels that's causing climate change. So there is a massive problem at the heart of politics in this country on the issue of climate change. Then we get to the question of war, where for several weeks now, the coalition government has tried to scare the pants off Australians to make Australians feel that they're about to be invaded any minute and need to go in a massive rearmament exercise um, with a big increase in the size of the military, uh, purchasing of all of these extra uh, military weapons, Australia to become a massive uh, weapons manufacturer. And then the latest is that Peter Dutton, the Minister for Defence, or I would call him the Minister for War, is almost trying to lure us into a third world war by um, sort of indicating that this is a belligerent sort of stance that Australia needs to adopt, which is preparing for war and not um, not the other side of it, which is trying to de-escalate conflicts so that they don't end up in war. War is disastrous for working class people, and we can see this in Ukraine where it's causing disaster for Ukrainian people, but it's also causing disaster for Russians. It's also causing disaster for the six or seven countries that have been pushed into famine as a direct result of the war in Ukraine. Um, That includes Yemen. And the ALP, unfortunately, is going along with uh, a lot of this. Um, But we need to de-escalate. We don't need war. And... You know, we've seen similar consequences with the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and Yemen to what we're seeing in in Ukraine. Then there's the issue of refugees, where neither major party plans to do anything significant for refugees. And certainly the uh, Medivac refugees, any refugee who arrived in Australia by boat after 2013, has no hope regardless of which party wins government. Um, Both the major parties are committed to making sure that no asylum seeker who sought refuge in Australia by boat after 2013 will ever be resettled in Australia, no matter whether they are recognised as genuine refugees or not. This is a disgraceful state of affairs. These people left their families behind in a lot of cases, I haven't seen their families in eight, nine, ten years, and they're in Australia in a limbo, waiting for some other country to resettle them. Canada, US, New Zealand. In my mind, this is no puts Australia in the same uh, category as people smugglers or human traffickers, are trafficking refugees around the world because Australia refuses to resettle them. There's only one element where the Labor Party intends to do anything significant, and that is abolish temporary protection visas, which would help tens of thousands of refugees. But we need permanent protection and resettlement for every single refugee, regardless of whether they arrived here by boat or not, regardless of what year they arrived here. 
So those are the key issues I see coming into this election. ALP has opted for a very narrow target election campaign strategy. What are the consequences of this? The ALP's decision to dump anything progressive it took to the previous election and go to this election with a Me Too kind of approach of saying, oh, the coalition has said this and we will do the same thing or something just slightly better than what the coalition's promising. I think this is outrageous because what it means is it doesn't challenge the right-wing nature of the government's proposals. For instance, the Australian gov government does not intend to increase Centrelink benefits in up to the level of the poverty line, which would be something like 200 odd dollars, between 180 to $200. Um, the ALP has also said that they won't review, won't even review, let alone increase the job seeker rate. This is absolutely dis disgusting. They don't, that means the ALP is not challenging the Morrison government's uh, frequently repeated statement that anyone who's on JobSeeker, it's their own fault, they refuse to get up and get a job, blah, 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 blah. Even now, with the unemployment rate dropping, there's still a layer of people who are applying for jobs and not getting those jobs, either because they don't have the training and experience, maybe they don't have the polish that some other candidates have, who've recently been in the workforce, but there are a whole lot of people who are discriminated against in terms of jobs, despite the fact that unemployment has decreased. Um, the ALP is also not challenging the government on a whole series of other issues. They're not challenging the government on the treatment of refugees by adopting a Me Too approach. They're not challenging the government in the question of war by just putting forward a sort of Me Too approach of saying, well, we think national security should be, should get increased funding and they're now proposing um, sort of military defence aid uh, from a Labor government if it gets elected and also that, um, and also that they'll uh, fund the, de the defence forces of Pacific nations. And so the ALPs step straight into providing military aid, not ordinary aid for ordinary people. And this is, it's blurring things for the Australian people, but also it's mis-educating Australians because they're not challenging the incredibly right-wing notions behind all of this. And then the government, to much fanfare, adopted a position of net zero emissions by 2050. Now, School Strike for Climate described that as delay tactics, trying to delay action as long as possible so that delay is a new denialism. Um, they're equating Morrison's plan to delay net zero emissions till 2050, the equivalent of cl climate deniers. And I think that's right, because who can tell what will happen in 2050? and the world will probably be totally cooked by the time we get to 2050. So we need action now. And unfortunately, the Labor Party, while it is better than the Coalition on Climate Change, it's not advocating to do anything that's sufficiently radical to cause a shift away from fossil fuel and towards 
um, climate action. So this is really um, a really rotten strategy by the Labor Party. Even if it helps them get into office, um, and we don't know if they'll get elected or Morrison will get re-elected, but even if this small target strategy helps them get into office, that's still a really problematic way for a party to get elected, that they're elected on the base of a me-too strategy with the coalition government. and not challenging any of those views from the left point of view. What do you think about the trade union's performance in this election campaign? Well, I would say the trade unions have been pretty invisible in this election campaign. I don't think that's entirely their fault. It's partly also because the media, since the announcement of the election date, has suddenly narrowed the focus onto who is making the most gaffes? Is it Albanese or is it Morrison? And by that strategy, the media is actually helping the government and they're helping people forget the crimes of the Morrison government over the last three years. So I think this, um, this has been, you know, really disastrous. And so I think in that, um, in that, way in which the media is covering things. They're not prepared to cover what the union movement is saying. But still, the union movement response itself has been inadequate as well. Um, there's certainly been no mobilisations on the streets. There haven't been, as far as I can tell, much in the way of public announcements from the ACTU or, other, or individual unions calling for a different direction for Australia, for workers. Um, so I think you know, their, their presence has been not really felt by most people. And I think, I think it is an advance that they're now calling for a vote for Labor and the Greens, Labor or the Greens, because they're recognising finally that the Greens are to the left of Labor. But we really need the unions to come even further left to support the socialist candidates and socialist campaigns and to, um, and to put forward a clear alternative to what the Liberal Party is putting forward. Do you think the closing of in of the major parties around a neoliberal pro-war conservative agenda risks the rise of the far right, as we have seen in France and other European countries? Well, I think the closing of the Liberal and Labour parties in on clear neoliberal policies and pro-war policies does make it a better environment for Nazis and neo-Nazis to recruit, for the far right to recruit. Because basically the two major parties, especially the coalition, are doing their best to try and make Australians frightened, make Australians feel as if we need to waste all of this money on war spending, when there's no threat to Australia, there's definitely no credible threat to Australia. So we, this, um, what this does is it disarms Australian work, working class people because the, you know, the Labor Party has a much bigger voice in the media than, ordinary, than any ordinary person from the left or otherwise. And so while there are voices from the left and there are some NGOs that are sort of supportive of the left. While they're, um, 
all arguing quite cogently against the coalition's pro-war policies, they're not they're not getting um, they're not getting covered in the media at all. And I think that then does lead to a right-wing um, trajectory in the Australian population, or was, or was likely to lead to a right-wing trajectory on questions of war. So I think the narrowing of the um, major parties onto a neoliberal agenda and uh, a pro-war positioning is really dangerous because it means that the Labor Party is not challenging the pro-war rhetoric that's coming out of Peter Dutton's mouth. Now, Peter Dutton is the Minister for Defence, but I would say he's actually the Minister for uh, Initiating War. Um, he's certainly adopting a very strong pro-war stance, trying to terrify Australians into uh, accepting that there's some sort of military threat to Australians, which necessitates massive increase in the defence force, a massive increase in uh, military spending, and a need to ally us Australia with the United States over um, the US interests in Ukraine and um, in other parts of the world as well. And this um, ALP's Me Too stance on this means that they're not challenging any of that, which then creates a very fertile ground for the far right to grow, as we've seen happen in Europe. Many people looking for an alternative to the left of the major parties see the Greens and the new woman independents as viable alternatives. Why should they consider a vote for Socialist Alliance? Well, why the Greens might be um, more progressive than Labor Party and more progressive than uh, the Liberal Party, they are still not an adequate alternative to the major parties mainly because they're still fixated on market solutions. They're not anti-capitalists. They still think that you can achieve cl climate action through the market. And what we've seen over the last 30 years that I've been aware of climate change is that the market has failed. If the market was going to be successful in solving the issue of climate change and shifting the economy to 100% renewable energy, this would have happened years and years ago. It would have happened 10 to 20 years ago, but that hasn't happened. So I think the people do need to consider voting for an alternative, voting one for Socialist Alliance and then voting for the Greens ahead of Labor because their pro, the Greens' pro-market approach is not enough on climate change, on, on, on solving the water situation, on recycling or any number of different environmental issues. And I'd say the second reason why it's important to support the socialists is because every major social and political reform in Australia has been won not as a result of politicians initiating change, but as a result of movements of people, grassroots movements, um, raising issues, campaigning on issues, and then convincing enough parliamentary players to change policy and change legislation on those particular issues. So that that's where the socialist movement would um, would pledge to support those 
campaigns if we're elected. And from my experience on the Moreland Council, um, I've been able to win a number of things as a single vote on council. Um, that doesn't mean I've won everything, but I've won a number of things. And the way I've done that is through working with the community to build community campaigns in areas where the council has done something where it's trying to close something such as the Faulkner Outdoor Pool, for example, last year. Um, probably, if it wasn't for the community campaign, it would have only been me against the closure of the outdoor pool. But because we had a community campaign, we managed to put enough pressure on the council for that to be a unanimous decision on council. So we need that interaction of grassroots movements with socialists elected to parliament, whether it be at federal, state or council level. You're listening to Green Left Radio, and you're just listening to a recorded interview with um, Moreland Councillor Sue Bolton um, talking about Labor's small target kind of strategy. Now, for the next part of the program, I just wanted to do a bit of a quick kind of news report, drawing from the pages of Green Left, and some... Basically, this is reporting on the Moreland Council workers striking for a fair kind of pay rise. To give a bit of an explanation of the issue, a bit of a background to the kind of issue, um, there's probably some of our listeners in Moreland actually have probably noticed that uh, a lot of the garbage and um, stuff isn't kind of being picked up at the moment. Um, and that is because a lot of those workers um, who are responsible for doing that um, are taking industrial action because management has essentially offered a pay offer that very much is a, a pay cut in real terms. And this... Um, Workers, um, members of the Australian Service Union, um, the Municipal and Utilities Union, the MUWU, and council management have been negotiating a new enterprise bargaining agreement since last August. Now, Victorian ASU Secretary um, Lisa Dominant said that workers had been left with no choice but to escalate industrial action after the 2% wage offer. Um, in fact, actually, the initial offer was actually, um, for, because I... Um, because I've been following this closely, was actually 1.5%, but now it's increased to 2% since then. But this is actually just well below the inflation rate of 5.5%. So essentially, it just actually means uh, a pay cut. And of course, um, the management has also refused to seriously consider union demands to address a toxic workplace culture and to offer a regular span of hours for library staff. And workers have been uh, taking protected industrial action, and that included a number, a series of kind of work bans, which began on on April 20th after a ballot. There are 25 bans in place. These include restrictions on street cleaning and sweeping, emptying street litter bins and litter pickup and collection of garbage from council reserves. Um, other bans include refusing to respond to non-urgent requests by councillors, not fixing or servicing the council fleet, plant or equipment except for safety reasons, and refusing to take phone calls outside of working hours. Union members are wearing badges in support of their claims and in-home support workers performing their duties in plain clothes rather than council uniforms. The workers taking industrial action are the same people who kept council services running throughout lockdowns and the pandemic. And, of course, some are, you know, actually work um, from, like, 3.30am. Mm. And 
one of the most one of the most questionable things that the Moreland Council has kind of done in response to this has been that um, they've um, they basically have hired scab labour to carry out some of the jobs, um, essentially hiring like private contractors, etc. And actually, one sort of important kind of point because I live in the Moreland Council area, I also want to sort of point out as well that. Um, there was actually, before these workers took action, there was actually um, a number of issues with the, the hard rubbish collection because basically the Moreland Council does hard rubbish collection like every other uh, every other sort of um, council. But they don't actually rely on, from my understanding, they don't actually rely on Moreland Council workers to actually do the work. They actually rely on a private contractor. And, mm. and in fact, this um, what was sort of interesting is the hard rubbish actually has been taken months or weeks to be cleared. Um, in fact, still isn't cleared. And, um, you know, the, this industrial action has probably escalated the issue probably even more. But, you know, it just sort of just shows, you know, when it comes to these sort of council services, you know, they, they actually need... You know, there needs to be more kind of prop. There needs to be more funding. And, of course, councils should not be privatising uh, essential um, essential services. Mm-hmm. Um, and, in fact, when you consider how they're actually treating <laughs> the workers that they actually employ, um, yeah, there's a, there's, a lot, there's a lot to be answered for in terms of this. And, anyway, um, one positive thing is that the workers have been taking action in response. So the MUWU workers took a 24-hour strike action on May 4 with a picket line at the Council Depot in Hadfield. Um, ASU members were at a picket line at the Council Operations Centre in Hadfield and had a stop work rally at the Brunswick Town Hall, which was attended by more than 100 people. And I was at the rally, and I guess one kind of quote which we've actually printed in um, Green Left that actually I think has a lot of relevance is from um, Adelaide, who is one of the council workers at the at the Moreland City Libraries. You know, um, they said that we're not just here as librarians, we are here for our peers mm-hmm. in aged care, childcare and kindergarten community care. If council allow- is allowed to, um, to get away with giving us less than what is right and decent, other councils will be able to hear. Yeah, we are all here for all council staff across the state and all council workers everywhere. Yeah, and good on those um, librarians for showing solidarity with other workers. I mean, they're, they're asking for a fair... Um, pay rise um, for library workers, but but all workers, you know, any demands from workers, um, you know, management always says there's not enough money and everything, but they have absolutely no issue spending a lot of time and money fighting workers, you know, drawing out these negotiations and um, spending money on getting anti-worker, anti-union laws passed. <clears throat> Yeah, definitely. And I guess one of the other, the one of the other kind of issues to sort of point out is, um, one of the kind of, um, is that, yeah, the management has kind of, has, you know, the argument that kind of management is trying to put is that, you know, there's not enough money because, you know, if we had to give, um, workers this fair kind of wage increase, then, well, we'd have to cut other services. Um, and of course, yeah, they, it is true that councils, councils are, you know, having pressure, but at the same time, this is an argument that, you know, many private businesses make on a regular basis. Oh, we're just going through hard times, etc. This is why we can't afford to kind of pay your wages. And I think, you know, there's actually probably a good point that, you know, uh, that's often kind of made um, by, you know, union activists and so on. Well, actually, a business model of, a, of any sort of capitalist sort of business that relies on, you know, 
exploiting their workers and not paying their workers fairly is probably not a good business model at the end of the day. Mm. And I think, you know, uh, we can, we should get completely get behind these workers, um, taking industrial action. Uh, Cause yeah, if they, if they win this, it would actually expire resistance and, um, from other, um, probably because, you know, this issue is actually not going to go away because, we are living in a cost of living crisis with the rate of inflation and, you know, most with wage stagnation as it is, any kind of fight like this is actually going to be important for, um, for the, um, for the majority of the, for the workforces elsewhere. Because yeah, this is going to be all workplaces who are going to be negotiating enterprise bargaining agreements with their, with their bosses and are going to face these same, uh, are going to face these kind of same issues. Yeah, and if you want to show your support, you can always, you know, keep track of this. I mean, we always, you know, we'll be keeping track of the, um, you know, what's going on. But you know, try to try to attend a few of the industrial actions and unions are asking residents and ratepayers to support the workers by posting solidarity messages on the council's social media sites. So you can go to Moreland City Council Facebook and yeah, write, write a message, show your support. Oh, um. And we'll just play a quick announcement. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio. When disaster hits a group of islands scattered around the ocean like Tonga, it is evident how the responses and actions can be difficult. For these multitude of uh, beings have no idea what to do, plus no equipment or tools to work with and the impact will show on everything, physically, mentally, financially, and people due to being uninformed and unequipped. So maybe this is, um, this is a question for the Tongan government. How can you manage situation like this better in the future? Subscribe to 3CR, informed, articulate, and alternative. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03-9419-8377. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses' Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR, radio for the workers, by the workers since 1976. You're back with Green Left Radio on 3CR. And our next interview is with Joey Tangaloa uh, Tuwali. Uh, Joey is one of the people detained currently in the detention centre in Broadmeadows um, in MITRE, the Melbourne Immigration Transit Accommodation. Um, he's been unjustly detained uh, under this under Section 501 of the Immigration Act and has been one of the people who has been resisting from the inside and has been speaking out via phone to us at the protest. Thank you for joining us on the show, Joey. 
Yeah, Chloe, thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, I want to thank God for these opportunities. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, uh, Joey, can you please uh, just maybe start off by telling us a bit about you, like um, where were you born and, um, you know, the fact that you've lived in Australia since you were a baby? Yeah, so basically um, uh, we came here in 1975. I was born in Tonga. Uh, we came here, uh, I was about three months old, both parents. Uh, I had an older sister and two older brothers. Um, and we came here in 1975. Uh, pretty much been here for my whole life. Um, went to primary school, grew up in Ringwood, went to kinder here, primary school, high school in Ringwood. Um, you know, later on moved to the western suburbs, but um, pretty much very Australian. We grew up very Aussie. Um, um, yeah, and, uh, you know, like, uh, parents have been in the same house for 40-plus years, Um Dad's buried here. Grandma's buried here. I have a daughter buried here. I have 11 children uh, living, uh, two grandchildren, uh, one granddaughter. I mean, sorry, um, and one grandchild on the way. But the situation is that I've been deemed bad character. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's that legislation 501. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for that, Con Joey. Um, my name is um, Jacob, and I'm the other presenter that's um, that's interviewing you for this program. Um, I was going to kind of ask a question. Um, the next kind of question I was going to follow up with is: there was a blockade that happened on Tuesday, where protesters blocked a few of the gates of Mitre to prevent people from de- being deported. So some of us were there on the ground, and we we cover, we've been covering this um, in Green Left. And I guess what can you can you tell us about this? And you know. Any sort of updates, and have you been in touch with some of the people, some of the refugees and other detainees who have been deported? And, of course, there's also some who are being returned to Christmas Island. Yes. So uh, thank you, Jacob. What, what, what's, ha- what's happened, Jacob, is that on the Tuesday morning, they come around and the, uh, the ERT, when I say they come around, I'm talking about ERT and Circo uh, guards um, who are pretty much uh, contracted out under, uh, from the government, which and uh, Australian Border Force. Um, and what they do when they come around, they come down very intimidating, the way they tell you to pack your things, wake you up at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning. Um, and there's there are roughly sometimes 30 to 40 guards. And what I found out is that they didn't tell anyone where they were going, but word got out that they were getting, deport, uh, getting sent to Christmas Island. Um, obviously, it got out there to the public, and that's where you guys... One of the guys, um, you beautiful people, came out and protested and supported the cause, uh, trying to stop these buses from leaving. What I do know is there was two altercations where people were hurt here. Someone was taken to hospital, um, where uh, I believe the guards had bashed one of the detainees here pretty bad. Um, Also, uh, people were hurt out the front, being pepper sprayed by the police, all those sort of things, and... um, Eventually, the buses did get out uh, at about half past five. Um, you know, obviously, the police come and, and broke everything up and they got the buses out. People were then sent from here to... They went to the airport. The airport, they went to um, Yonga Hill, which is in WA, and then they picked up some more people. So the plane came from... began in Baita, which is in Brisbane, came down to... Um, New South Wales, and picked up people from Villawood, 
then to Melbourne, Mitre, Mitre to Yonga Hill, Yonga Hill, then they went on to uh, Christmas Island. Um, and I have spoke to some of them guys in Christmas Island, and um, they are going through, uh, they're very torn apart, they're down, they're broken, these guys are broken, they can't believe this has happened. They've been dumped over there in units that are burnt. Um, these units, obviously, there's been riots there um, throughout the year. Um, and, and also last year, and, and, and these units that are burnt, they're pretty much just thrown in a mattress and said, there you go, work it out. So this is this is what's going on here. P- people, please um, wake up and, and see what this government's doing to people. I mean, at the end of the day, 501s went to prison. We've done our time. And 99% of 501s have been here for many years, um, growing up here and... And pretty much, you know, Australia, Australia raised us. Yeah, thank... Uh, oh, sorry. I'll let you go yeah, on. Go on, Joy, go on. Joy. Sorry. <laughs> I, I interrupted you. Was there something else you wanted to say on, on yeah, the Yeah, I just blockade? wanted to thank, thank all those people that came out. And what, what we need, Chloe, is more people to come out and support this. Um, and this is not just for 501s. There are refugees here, Chloe, mm. that have been here for five years, seven years, ten years. Um, I think there's a couple that have been here 12 years, you know. So um, it's very, very important. Um, and I didn't realise this, Chloe, until I came here, what Australia, this Australian government, is doing to people. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah, you were saying that at the time of your detention, you didn't, you didn't actually realise that you weren't a citizen because a lot of your siblings are citizens. Um, and so it was a bit of a surprise to you that the detention centre existed. A lot of people don't know about about these things. Um, that's why it's so important to to hear your voice and, and to get the word out there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people don't know what goes on here. I mean, um, after doing your time, uh, you get sent here. And this place, I want to remind people, this place is worse than prison. Mm. Uh, you come here, you, there's, there's so many issues with this place. First of all, living conditions is appalling. Um, you put into a double cell. Uh, in prison, they give you a single cell. Here, you put into a double cell. So if you're feeling unwell and you're not right, I mean, you've got to tolerate living with someone else. And in some cases, there's a lot of, uh, you know, people end up turning on each other. But um, one of the biggest things here is uh, food. Um, the people that cook the food here, they cook it for themselves. It's what they want. It's what, um, the, you know, like I say, the food here is very distasteful. We, we were treated better in prison, um, you know, than we are here. And um, even in regards to uh, mental health issues, there's been cases where people have tried to commit suicide in front of me. Mm-hmm. And I've watched the guards, and I've seen them go up and detainees go up and talk to the guards, say, I need to speak to someone. I'm going through some problems. And they pretty much just say, look, fill out a form. Um, and when the time comes, um, we'll call you up. Now, that individual, they need the help there and then. Yeah. Um, and in the end, they, they try and uh, you know, hang themselves. Uh, people have slashed up many times. Uh, these are the sort of things that you go through here. Um, and this uh, and this one is pretty much designed to break you down. Uh, also, the treatment from guards. Uh, we're treated like we're aliens. Um, yeah, there's quite a lot of things that go on. Um, there's 
especially in regards to um, the point system here, where you're given $35 a week, mm-hmm. then you have to work for the extra $25 to get the maximum $60. Now, what happens sometimes is you don't find out until you go to the canteen and they, they tell you, oh, your points are short. So some of these people that run these activities where you get $2 for an activity, they play God with the, the $2. Um, and also just things we ask for here, depending on which manager you get, again, managers play God with a lot of things. Um, but especially there's been cases with food, um, where, where there's glass found um, in certain things, uh, soap found in desserts. Um, even in some cases, there was maggots found. All those sort of things. All those sort of things that go on here that people don't know about. Yeah, well, we appreciate you, um, you know, letting us know all that. It, it sounds appalling, and and of course, um, we also have to remember the the fact that you have no parole rights in indefinite detention. Um, you, you know, you were telling me that when you finished your sentence or when you were about to start your sentence, someone said, oh, you know, if you had a visa, you'd be going home today. Um, and, of course, some have finished their sentence or some some people haven't even been convicted or charged of a crime and yet they're thrown into detention because the immigration minister has, has those godlike powers to judge you based on, you know, you know, whether or not they like you, based on your history. Um, so there's a lot there's a lot of stuff that's... Um, uh, you know, it's a, it's a it's a human rights disaster, really. Um, and and yeah. I, I know that you're in solidarity with with the refugees as well that are there with you. Um, and you would, uh, how many people are in Maita, Joey? Look, I, from what I from what I've been uh, told, there's roughly 250, mm-hmm. um, somewhere between 200 to 250. Um, but absolutely, we're we're in solidarity with the refugees. Mm-hmm. Um, I've filmed. Uh, I've done a few short little interviews myself with some of the refugees. And, look, some of them have been here for many years, you know, nine years, seven years, ten years. Mm. Uh, I don't get it. I mean, the the refugees come here to Australia seeking help, and this is what a government does. It says, oh, okay, we'll help you. We'll put you in detention for seven years, nine years, ten years, and you can sit in there, and when we're ready to uh, release you, depending on elections coming up and whatnot, uh, they decide to let them out, uh, and not all of them. You know, it's 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 absolutely appalling behaviour, um, especially coming from a, a so-called democratic country uh, government. Um, I don't know what else to say about it, but uh, the refugees—they've never done anything wrong. Come here looking for help, and this is the this is the help that they're given. You know, and um, yeah, it's for something like this to happen in this day and age—it's it's unbelievable. Yeah, it's um, definitely unbelievable, Joey. And I guess the kind of next question that kind of flows out of that is, this is obviously not the first time that the Australian government has deported people after holding them um, hostage for a long time in detention. You know, can you tell us a bit about, you know, what has happened to people who have been deported in in the past? So what I know for sure is that... um Many people that are deported have no support whatsoever in whatever countries they go, they're going to, you know, um, but especially New Zealand. Um, there's so many deports that have gone to New Zealand. There's been suicides. Um, many people have gone and just ended up taking their own lives, unfortunately, because there's just been no family there, no support. Um, 
people have turned to drugs and alcohol. Um, I know that some females that I've spoken to have turned to prostitution. Uh, you know, all these sort of things. Um, you know, people have just gone back to a, a life of crime. Uh, there's broken men, broken women, um, because what they've done is they've given us a life and, in some cases, death sentence. Also, I do know of a story that has been told to me that six Africans had signed to go back to their country after being here for so many years. Now, after three months of being deported to the countries uh, where they were born, they were all murdered. Now, this, this government has blood on their hands in many... I mean, some of this stuff is just is unheard of, you know, these sort of things. And how this government can, you know, can, can get on TV and think that everything's good and, you know, life's all rosy while this sort of thing is happening in their own backyard, what they're doing to people. And at the same time, talking about China with the Uyghur issue, talking about North Korea suppressing its own people, Australia, this Australian government is doing the exact same thing. Yeah. Oh, sorry, it's no. Jacob, you go if you oh, want no, to. Oh, yeah, no, you're getting right. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, Joey, th- thank you. We, we, we've heard you calling out the hypocrisy of this federal government um, for criticising other countries' human rights abuses during rally speeches. So, you know, we you know we appreciate that. Um, but we, um, we are going to wrap up this interview soon. So... Um, you know, did you have any last any last comments that you'd like to look for our listeners to know? Just that if you are a permanent resident, please check your what your status is. If you are a permanent resident visa, that's what you hold on a permanent resident visa. You are more than likely over. It could be an argument with your your partner, or it could be an, a car accident. It could be just something small. It could you know. You, they're more than likely you're going to end up here. And even on a website, uh, on a 501 website, it says that the government has targeted people. They've got some database which is targeting uh, permanent residents to see their background. And, uh, and I just want to remind people that this legislation was brought out, uh, renewed in 2014 for terrorists. And now they've tarnished it. You know, it's, it's a whole broad... Uh, thing is, you know, let's grab these people, grab those people, um, you know, 501s, 116s. But um, please, people, um, you know, wake up and see what's happening here. This, there's a big injustice. This is one of the biggest um, human rights breaches ever. And thank you very much to you all for listening and thank you for having me on, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much um, for talking to us um, today, um, Joey, and, and for telling us about your inhumane treatment and and the treatment of hundreds of others and we will continue to show solidarity to you and and others held in my and hopefully shut it down soon um hopefully we can stop some deportations but you know we do encourage people to join the protests outside mida and please not forget about the people being held there refugees and the people under 501 of the immigration act um thanks again joey and um yeah we'll we'll be in touch thank you so much god bless guys Bye. Thank you very much, Joey. And you were just listening to uh, Joey, who's um, currently held in the MITRE um, Detention Centre in Broadmeadow. Um, and, yeah, he was talking about what he's going through while 
um, being detained for years and years and years. And there was um, on Tuesday, there was unfortunately a deportation of around 12 uh, people, I think, to Christmas Island. Some of them actually are being returned to Christmas Island, uh, and there was a blockade there. Uh, so we were just uh, talking about that. Uh, but, Jacob, did you should we go into a, a song or...? We'll just play Yeah, we can play yeah. a quick announcement. Quick and, announcement, yeah, yep. And stay tuned. Stay tuned. I really am not understanding why people aren't seeing the fact that prisons are an integral part of a public health response to a pandemic. Like you, I'm really concerned about whether the data is being released very honestly about illnesses within prison. I have suspicions it's not, but really we need very strong leadership in this country that actually cares about people inside, our most vulnerable populations inside. That's what we need and that's not what we're getting right now. We need to keep radical voices on air Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. All right. You're listening to Green Left Radio. And um, I now it is time for the Green Left kind of activist calendar. Um, so I thought I would announce um, a number of events that are kind of coming up. And actually, there isn't actually... Um, there are a number of protests kind of happening. So the first kind of protest I want to sort of highlight is actually happening tomorrow, which is titled Kick Out Morrison um, Permanent Reasons for Refugees. And that's going to be a rally that's been organised by the by Unionists um, for Refugees. And it's been actually um, hosted by and um, endorsed by a number of trade unions. So yeah, this is an event that's going to include um, yeah a number of um, will include um, re- it will include um, yeah a number of um, union speakers and refugee activists. And so I think this is going to be quite a good event um, to get along to. So yeah, that's going to be happening at 2 p.m. at the State Library um, this Saturday. The next event that I kind of want to highlight is on May. Um, May 13th, there's going to be a film screening, 50 Years of Imagine, at um, 7.30pm at the Palace Theatre, Lower Esplanade in St Kilda. And then on then on um, the next event is on the 15th of May. Um, what was the, it, this is the Tamil Genocide Day. What was the, what was the date and details for that again? And quick get the details. This is actually the last event. Oh, yeah, here it is. So it's at 2 o'clock. At, it's also at 2 o'clock Sunday at, um, organised by the Tamil Refugee Council. Tamil Genocide Day Rally is, yep, yeah, it's on Sunday, the 15th of May at 2 p.m. So, yeah, that's... Uh, and it's at the State Library. So, yeah. So those are actually some of the events. And the last event I'll just highlight is... Uh, There'll be a public forum organised by Refugee Action Collective after the election, which way forward for the refugee movement. So, yeah, that's just some of the events. It's actually, yeah, it does seem to be, there's a bit thin on the ground in terms of activist events, but hopefully that will get back together once um, the, um, the, once we go, get back once, um, once the election is sort of over. 
Anyway, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. And I thought, would um, Chloe, you wanted to kind of play a quick kind of song and track. Yeah, I didn't have my mic on before. Sorry, listeners. <laughs> We're going to be playing a, a song um, by Matt Ward. Matt, Matt Ward um, puts together some of the radical political albums for Green Left. And here's um, his song called Why Are You In Right Gear? I Don't See No Right Here. about that listeners um we had a bit of a technical issue getting matt ward's song up so maybe we can play it later in the show or, or next show uh oh sorry <laughs> yeah yeah so yeah we'll just um we'll, we'll possibly play it um at the, at the next kind of program um but now we're actually getting ready for our next interview for the program so we'll just play a quick few announcements um you're listening to green left radio on free cr 855 a.m When I was new to Melbourne, I found a Food Not Bombs fly on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. CR programs provide information and analysis you won't hear in the mainstream. Today we'll be looking at the legacy of the US war on Vietnam on Laos. And as far as corporate capitalism is concerned, it is the worst political and economic system that you can have. Our laws about jailing refugees and asylum seekers are so well crafted. Sex is not irrelevant and we like who we are, but we don't have to be imprisoned by our gender. Become a subscriber today. Call us on 9419 8377 or visit 3cr.org.au. 3CR, the voice of dissent. Accent women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accent women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the... 
how can people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are two where there are armies there and terrorists there such conflict every single day of their lives accent to women a show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds on community radio 3CR You're back with Green Left Radio on 3CR. And we've got our next interview um, with Afshan K. Mantu, who's from the Muslim Women's Council of Victoria. Um, And, yeah, Afshan is here to speak to Green Left about some of the essential work um, you do in the community. Welcome to the show, Afshan. Thank you for having me, Chloe. Uh, Could you, well, maybe start off um, uh, by telling us a bit about the Muslim Women's Council of Australia, and what kind of work you do? Okay, well, um, we started to establish um, the organisation since it's been established since '89. So it's sort of to empower Muslim women and also to break the misconception of Islam and also about the hijab, because some of us do wear hijab and some of us don't. And also, you know, getting education for the women in Australia especially for the new migrants, helping them to sort of go through institutions and complete their degree, so which we have been successful in that. And plus, um, we also educate them of the laws of this country and what are their rights as well. And plus, you know, um, like, you know, their job is sort of, you know, too small for anyone, so we just have to do that. And also just to... Uh, and also we're sort of involved with um, breaking, well, breaking all these misconceptions about Islam. So we have a, a program called One Coffee, One Chat, where Muslims and non-Muslims get together and we talk about anything that, you know, they want a clarification and all that. So that's what Muslim women are all about. But since COVID came and we couldn't do any of these programs and um, so... We sort of, you know, everyone's struggling for food and international students. And we were getting to know that a lot of people are really struggling because there was not also halal um, hot meals provided as well. And then if you were COVID and then you were sent a box of goodies with lots of cans like baked beans and, you know, um, spaghetti. It was just horrible food. And then they would sort of reach out to us. And we thought, hang on, let's do something. And then we decided let's do a a food relief. We had no experience whatsoever. So we reached out to Morland Council. They were really good. They helped us. They gave us the Coburg Town Hall Kitchen, and which we started our food relief from there. So the first day we started, I think it was about 60 boxes that we made. And out of that, only, you know, I think no, 100 we made, actually, and 20 were just gone, and we thought, oh, oh we're getting it wrong. But anyway, as time just progressed, and then we ended up making 300 meals uh, every Friday a week. And plus, we were giving grocery packs to international students and basically people who didn't have any support from the government at all. So these were the families they were sort of, you know, reaching out to and helping. And we were getting a lot of referrals as well. And it was really good. And COVID patients as well, you know, they had no access to kitchen or anything. So since then, we've been doing food relief and reaching out to the community. So it's not just for Muslims. It's just showing that Muslims are out there in the community helping everyone else. Mm. 
Hmm. Yeah, um, I kind of want to, you've kind of answered some of the aspects of the next question we're going to kind of ask you, but I thought I would focus, I guess, the question a bit more on, I guess, another sort of aspect, because um, one of the kind of things, obviously, about the services that you were providing was that, you know, there were a lot of people who were actually left out of um, mm. of um, a lot of the government subsidies, um, for example, when, when COVID obviously hit, like, you know, JobKeeper and um and job seeker. And then of course yep. there was also the fact that the Morrison government, you know, told temporary visa holders to go back home. Mm. And of course some of these people obviously reached out to you. So I want to see here a bit of comments to that. But I also contextually we're also now living, I guess, in a cost of living kind of crisis. And mm. I guess I want to sort of hear about, you know, how have all those sort of different factors I've mentioned from the historical factors kind of there and now this current context have kind of impacted on, you know, some of the work that you have been doing for the community. Yeah. Look, it, the, you know, with cost of living, it is uh, rising, and especially fruit and vegetables. We, you know, people can't afford it as a family. So, for example, you know, we've still had cauliflower, the price of cauliflower, what, $7? That's ridiculous. I mean, if you have a family of six, you're not going to get very far, you know. And it's just ridiculous. So we thought, you know, after COVID, we sort of slow down. But now we're still getting more and more because there are people who just lost their jobs and they're still with COVID and everything. They haven't really been successful in getting a job and there's not much work out there and also the cost of living. So we're still getting more clients um, as well. So we haven't really stopped. And it's not that we're going to close down either because there is a great need out there. So it's really affected a lot of people. Yeah, thanks. Um, thanks for um, letting us know all that, um, Afshan. Uh, I actually was speaking to you today about um, some of the Af- Afghan families, sort of around 800 or hundreds of people who were mm. um, repat- uh, repatriated to Australia after the fall of Kabul last year. And you know, maybe would you like to just maybe tell us a little bit about what was happening with them, um, how the Muslim Women's Council of Victoria helped them during that time? Well, first, it was actually not... It was just 700 in the city and then about 200 in reservoir. So basically, one of our uh, volunteer workers, she's an uh, Afghan, we helped her as well. So she was from New Zealand. And we were helping her, and she came across these Afghans who reached out to her and said, look, can we help them? They've got no food, nothing at all. They were put in some sort of an aged care facility um, up there in the reservoir, and it was sort of really honestly family of four, you know, it's horrible. And they had to live sort of in one room, and the kids, they had no toys, they had no clothing, like they just got on the plane and came here. So we reached out, and they reached out to us, and then we put out a word in the community, and the community has been fantastic, you know. And everyone gave clothing and, and for clothes for like babies, from babies to adults. So we managed to sort out, gave them clothing, and then we were providing every week food relief, not just sort of hot meals, even though like uh, essentials like uh, five kilos of rice, lentils, spices, oil, nappies for the kids, or even sand, you know, toiletries for themselves as well. And so that was one thing. Then on the city, at the city, one of our volunteers again was sort of around there, and then she saw these kids running around on the street. And then she approached them, and uh, she found their Afghanis sort of They'd been Swanson Street, and um, so there was again. They had no clothing. I don't know. I mean, who was who was looking after them? You know, can you imagine just coming into a country with just one, with one pair of clothing? And how would you wash it? And you needed jumpers. It was cold, and you know, it was a lot of things. And the kids were just running. They thought it was a safe country, so we just told them no. Then 
then they reached out to us and then we were inundated. You know, it's not a joke, 700, you know, a big number. But again, we helped them just with clothing and um, food and whatever was needed, even the toys for the kids because the kids were going crazy and want the room just writing on the wall. So the manager was really happy when they gave them toys, books. And then we sort of, you know, gave them a bit of a lecture about the, in this country. I said, yeah, it could be safe, but you don't leave kids around. They could get hurt, you know, um, somebody speeding. They could get run over as well and someone could abduct them. So you've got to be careful. So, I mean, I just don't understand, you know, I mean, you, they brought them here, just dumped them in the room and then we'll sort you out later, give us some time. But that's not the way, that's inhumane conditions for the way we're living here. Hmm. And um, what can you tell us a bit about, um, just for, for our listeners, you know, tell us about your food truck, I guess, any kind of upcoming events, how can people find out about, you know, learn more or get involved? Um, so, yeah, how can people get Yeah. We love, look, as I said, we're really at the moment looking for volunteers because as our numbers are growing because of the crisis, you know, um, as the food prices are going up. We'd love to have some volunteers, some drivers for deliveries and picking up food. That'd be great. You can look at the moment, um, a couple of times our uh, sign has been hacked with the word Muslim, so we haven't even got a sign there. And then plus, our, uh, I think the website also was hacked. So we're trying to update that. And plus, you can look us up on Facebook and you can see all our wonderful work that we've been doing. And we're reaching out to people. That would be you know, great. And also, we would be once we, we've ordered a food truck, and which has been great from look, um, the Northern Foundation. They gave us um, some money for the food truck. It was lovely, but we're still a bit short of a few things. But that would be great. And um, so we will start cooking once we get the truck. We're just waiting to get the permit and all the, you know, logistics we have to sort of still in process of. But we'd love to people come and help and, you know, and volunteer with us. And then we'll start the, again, the One Coffee, One Chat to come and meet us, talk to us. And, you know, if you've got any sort of want to clear some few things about Islam, please come and reach out to us and we can do whatever we can to help you sort of, you know, we'd like to sort of build bridges and reach out to everyone. That'd be great. Yeah, thanks, Ashan. That one coffee, one chat sounds like a, a great initiative. And um, yeah, thank you for all you do. You know, you've you've managed to connect um, people in the community. You've you you know do a lot of work around um, you know helping refugees um, settle here and around uh, you know helping temporary visa holders. And, you know, like you are actually providing essential service with no government help at all. Um, and, yeah, I, I think it's great that, you know, you're doing lots of work around the empowerment of women. And, you know, you're, you know, the the organization is also helping break down a lot of Islamophobia that, that does exist, um, unfortunately, especially around women, women who wear the hijab. Um, so yeah, we really appreciate you joining us on the show, and and also I want to thank you for providing food to the. Um, we had a um, refugees um, organized a cricket match to celebrate their freedom from detention, nine years in detention, and you, um, the Muslim Women's Council of Australia actually made all the food uh, so we could break fast. So that was um, we really enjoyed that, and we're appreciative of that. So um, yeah, are there any last comments that you'd like to? Make um, Afshan before we wrap up. Look, we're sort of hearing, you know, we just we'd love to get the support from government that who can really fund us, that we can provide more essential services for other people as well. And we're struggling at the moment. Now I've sort of given up my own office to sort of provide the 
uh, space at the moment. So, you know, I mean, this is not fair. I mean, this, you know, and the government has a lot of, you know, grants and everything else. We've got to sort of compete with others. And then the big organization gets, you know, our little organization, we miss out. So I think it's unfair. I mean, they should sort of look at what the work we're doing and then do it according to that. And we do have proof. It's not that just we're just sort of, you know, making it all up. And so that's what I want. I want, you know, really government organization to find other organizations as well, not this big organization out there who get, you know, we work with the grassroots. It's really important. And, you know, it's really important to help. Look, we can help people. We can give them a direction, which is great. And that's what we want to do. We want to now help, you know, um, educate the next generation. Then they can take on. Then we retire and it just sort of goes on. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for, for giving us a really good explanation and, and sharing um, all the work, all the great work that you're doing in the community. And yeah, I hope that listeners, um, you know, if you're looking for um, a volunteer opportunity or to help Afshan and the Muslim Women's Council of Australia out, please get in touch with her. Um, we'll put some links in our um, on our page as well so people can um, find them easily. But, yeah, thank you, um, Afshan. We'll, we might have to wrap up, but, um, yeah, no thanks way. for coming on the show. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Um, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio, and um, we might just play a quick announcement, and we're getting close to kind of like the end of our program, but we'll just do some closing kind of comments. Um, so, yeah, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. Able-bodied Australia does not realise that people with disabilities across the board are being discriminated against. Then the government to demand that we go out and get a job without removing the disincentives like the lack of access to transport and community infrastructure, without providing accessible buildings that can provide barrier-free employment. I'm not getting a fair go and I don't like it and I'm saying so. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55 on the AM dial. Είναι σημαντικό να είστε επικαιροποιημένοι με τα εμβόλια κατά τη COVID-19 συμπεριλαμβανομένη τη αναμνηστική σα δόση. Κάνοντα την αναμνηστική δόση, αυξάνετε την προστασία ενάντια στο να αρρωστήσετε βαριά και συνεχίζετε να προστατεύετε του αγαπημένου σα και την κοινότητα από την COVID-19. Για να κλείσετε ραντεβού, επισκεφτείτε το australia.gov.au ή καλέστε στο 1800-020-080 και επιλέξτε 8 αν χρειάζεστε διερμηνέα. Επισκεφτείτε το health.gov.au ή μιλήστε στο γιατρό σα να μάθετε πότε είστε επιλέξιμοι. Εγκρίθηκε από την Αυστραλιανή κυβέρνηση Κάμπερα. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and um, we, we were just listening to Afshan Kang Mantu, uh, who is the founder of the Muslim Women's Council of Victoria, and I think we're about to wrap up the show, Jacob. Yeah, so I'd just like to um, end by just um, thanking all our listeners for tuning in this week. I'll also like to thank all our guests, especially Joey and Afshan, for been on our program this week um yeah we're going in for we'll have um we'll stay tuned for next friday um we'll have more um cover more coverage of probably what's been happening with the um with the federal election um because there was actually quite a lot of things that we haven't actually spoken about then but i think we're actually talking about more kind of important issues than necessarily this election and yeah so yeah stay tuned for um there'll be a, a, a rerun of earth matters kind of following this and yeah um, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and we'll love. To, um, hope to see you all again next Friday. Thanks, everyone. Bye.
This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from your slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that. When disaster hits a group of islands scattered around the ocean like Tonga, it is evident how the responses and actions can be difficult for these multitude of uh, beings have no idea what to do, plus no equipment or tools to work with. And the impact will show on everything, physically, mentally, financially, and people due to being uninformed and unequipped. So maybe this is, um, this is a question for the Tongan government. How can you manage situation like this better in the future? Subscribe to 3CR, informed, articulate and alternative. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377.